Hello, listeners. From home or on the road, catch a favorite story. You are listening to Catch the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to catch the story. Our first story, Eight, the Untold Story, is written by Michael Mullin and narrated by the movie star Paul Giamatti. Eight, the previously untold story of the previously unknown Eighth Dwarf. The stories we passed down from parent to child were once filled with darkness, but somehow turned mild. We tweak and revise, and when all else fails, we choose to omit certain crucial details until they're forgotten, and nobody knows how a story originally truthfully goes. Take Snow White, for example, a popular tale with plenty of unpleasant truths to unveil. For instance, I'd wager that you didn't know seven lived in that cottage, while one lived below. It wasn't always that way. They once lived as eight, till he changed into strange, staying up, sleeping late. He ate less and less, turned skeleton thin, and shaved his beard down to a patch on his chin. He was twisted and moody, a freak to the letter. Calling him creepy didn't make things much better. He had nothing in common with his cheerful housemates who were always so thrilled about things that he hates. He had different notions of how to have fun, and he never agreed with the way things were done. But each comment was heard as a selfish complaint, so he kept to himself. He practiced restraint. But silence just made him a deeper enigma, confirming his odd personality stigma. Till one night at dinner he'd had quite enough of their pointless, dwarfish merriment stuff. When a spider crawled slowly across Creepy's bowl, he grabbed it and showed it and swallowed it whole. That does it, they said, and they locked him downstairs in a cellar room, cold and in need of repairs. From there he still heard them, their chatter and feet, and he saw them through floorboards that didn't quite meet. He wondered how long they would keep up this game. After all, he was just living up to his name. The next morning the seven went back to the grind. Not one looked back as they left him behind. Who needs them, he asked himself, angry and hurt. Then he stomped around, kicking his shoes in the dirt. Night after night, the group showed they were fine with their choice as they sat down to drink and to dine. They carried on just as they had done before and pushed guilt-free meals through a hole in his door. For weeks, it continued with no feelings expressed until one afternoon that was not like the rest. While he sat there in silence beneath the wood floor, an unwelcome creature came in the front door. Hello, it called out in a voice, scared and thin. A reply was not needed. She just let herself in. How rude, thought Creepy, in sheer disbelief, unless she's a criminal, some kind of thief. If that is the case, then it serves those dopes right. The front door unlatched, yet mine is locked tight. 
He quietly moved to the place in his tomb where he got the best view of the ground-level room. She walked overhead, and he opened his jaw, surprised and transfixed by the sight that he saw. Her bare feet were covered with cuts and scrapes, but beyond that were far more intriguing shapes. Layers of wrinkled-up cotton and lace covered gentle curves in the negative space. His mind raced with thoughts not entirely clean, seeing that which was clearly not meant to be seen. He thought that perhaps he should look well away, then answered, Why should I? They made me this way. He tried, but could not get sight of her face as she moved around, no doubt robbing the place. She soon moved right toward him, the barefoot brunette, to offer what should be his best glimpse yet. He readied himself and looked to the sky, but all he got was a cascade of dirt in his eye. Some other sound followed her steps in that room. A scraping? No. Sweeping. She was... Using a broom? He wouldn't have believed it if he hadn't seen it. She broke into their house to do nothing but clean it. When he found he could once again see straight and blink, he heard water and dishes. She was filling the sink. And when hit by the smell of a slow-cooking meal, he thought to himself, Is this lady for real? Soon after was silence. There was something amiss. When the others got home, they'd think he did all this. They'd think he felt sorry and was making amends. But he had no such plans for his seven ex-friends. Come home they did, and they ooed and they awed at their lame little home with the tidy facade. He then heard the creak of each wobbly stair, and a girl shriek confirmed that the maid was still there. He heard one of them say, You can live here with us if you cook and you clean and you don't make a fuss. She seemed quite contempt to accept the raw deal and made each of them wash and sit down for his meal. The dinner talk soon turned to party plans. All she did was show up, and she had seven fans. They laughed, and he told himself, oh, don't get excited, because he, for certain, would not be invited. Did they think he would spook her with one of his faces or touch her in inappropriate places? Ah, he won't even be mentioned. Darling might get scared. Ah, they could have their dumb party for all that he cared. He was kept up for hours by the night's jubilee. The dancing and laughing went on until three. The seven left early for work the next morning without mention of him, not even a warning. So he watched what he could from down under the floor. A practice he practiced till quarter to four. That's when a sudden surprise knock on the door came so loud and so firm it was hard to ignore. He heard a good day from some raspy old crow, and then their chat played to him like some radio show. She was selling a shawl made of cottony lace. He imagined the interest on the maid's unseen face, but she pleaded no money, at which thereupon the old visitor implored her to just try it on. The next thing he heard was a gasp and a choke. The old lady ran laughing, but it seemed like no joke. When the maid hit the floor from the senseless attack, Creepy's view was turned dark by the shape of her back. He stood on a stool, thinking, Oh, what the heck? 
and loosened the shawl's deathly grip on her neck. He only did it so he might have a story to tell, and to avoid a dead body that would soon start to smell. And the next day, around noon, the old woman returned. In disguise, Creepy guessed, for the maid seemed unconcerned. She welcomed the stranger again to her home, and took from the villain some decorative comb. A thank you was offered from the queen unaware, as she stupidly stuck the jeweled thing in her hair. The maid, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, fell in almost exactly the same spot as before. Creepy sighed, shook his head, then got the stool quick, but only reached the poison comb with the aid of a stick. When it finally knocked loose, the maid lifted her head. She'd no clue that she now had been twice almost dead. The next afternoon, the old woman came back, this time with some sort of fresh-picked fruitful snack. Creepy thought to himself, there's no way she'll partake. Not three days in a row, for goodness sake. The next thing he heard was a thump on the floor. But today, she fell well out of reach by the door. As he heard her witch laugh fade away in the wood, he struggled with how to do that which he should, to escape and see whether or not she was dead or risk getting blamed for her murder instead. Knowing the seven would be home pretty soon, he picked the old lock with his rusty soup spoon. He went to the spot wherein face down she laid and slowly turned over the gullible maid. All the mysteries of nature seemed to fall into place as he drank in his first real good look at her face. Her skin and her hair were like nothing he'd seen. Her eyes, though closed, were still warm and serene. His face became flushed. He went light in the head. If only this vision of beauty weren't dead. Her neck like an angel, her chest like a doll. He stared and then, wait, did it just rise and fall? Breathing, he thought. Could his luck be that good? But her coma was sure to be misunderstood. He needed to wake her, but he didn't know how. He called her and shook her and knocked on her brow, but still she lay still, which made him think this, that no one would know if he gave her a kiss. Nothing creepy, just an innocent peck on the cheek, or maybe the lips. He could practice technique. His mind raced with pre-guilt and worry and doubt. It was wrong to touch lips with a woman passed out. He struggled but did it, just as quick and as kind as he could before changing his little dwarf mind. His heart then erupted with joy and with bliss. His whole outlook was changed by his one-sided kiss. It got better. He saw that his kiss had some power. It was to her eyelids like light to a flower. They opened. She sat up, returned to full life. He asked her right then and there, Please be my wife. As she opened her perfect red lips to reply, he saw a new life in his mind's inner eye. Together with her, all was happy and good. They lived in a cottage in some other wood. She was set now to speak. His whole body went weak, but the sound she sent forth was a horrified 
shriek. Along with her answer, she made perfectly clear her discomfort at even having him near. The whole thing was unfair. He only came to her aid. What on earth did he see in this dim-witted maid? He told her she'd fainted. Perhaps she was sick. She needed her strength. Ah, here's an apple. Bite quick. He was halfway back to the cellar door when he heard the soft thud of her hitting the floor. All through the night, while the seven cried, he refused to look up from his room down inside. They never confronted him, never asked what or why. They just made arrangements and continued to cry. He watched them all kneel in their sniffling group sob by the see-through glass coffin, and they called him macabre. Wasn't he just as special and different as she? Just not different in a way that they cared to see. He vowed that because of their judgmental ways, he would stay in that cellar for the rest of his days. But resurface he did just one time more, in the cover of night with a tool for his chore. He approached her and thought, how pathetic she seems, no doubt her own vanity painting her dreams. With confidence and skill, he moved toward her head, knowing they all thought she was already dead. With his drill, he bore several small holes in the glass, spaced evenly and hidden down low by the grass. That should do it, he said, pretending not to care. She gets everything else. Why deny her her heir? Some well-to-do guy arrived after that night. He kissed her, then claimed her, as if by some right. It seemed a strange kiss was not creepy this time. If the kisser's attractive, <laughs> it's not seen as a crime. Creepy scoffed as he watched them ride happily away. Whatever. Who needs her, was all he would say. If not for his drill, that guy would have kissed death. You're welcome, he commented under his breath. The End America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Michael got inspired after an unexpected meeting with Tim Burton. Besides writing, Michael also deals in vintage collectibles. Next, we have Deborah Yates, author of Women of Many Names. The book is about her 70th great-grandmother, Nancy Ward, a significant figure in Native American history. OCO, I'm Deborah S. Yates, author of a novel called Woman of Many Names. It was written about my seventh great-grandmother, Nanyi, who's also known as Nancy Ward. I am also a Cherokee citizen. OCO is the greeting that the Cherokee use when we need each other. 
We are a proud people that have managed to survive for thousands of years in a country that hasn't appreciated our presence. Anoyuia, the water people, is what we call ourselves, not Cherokee. Nancy Ward led her people for over 60 years and died at the approximate age of 82 years old in 1822. At the age of 18, she went to war in what was called the Battle of Talawah, which is near present-day Ball Ground, Georgia. The battle was led against the Creek Indians after they intruded upon our hunting grounds, depleting our food supply. She accompanied my seventh great-grandfather, Kingfisher, as well as the war chief, Oconestoa, and also the well-known and renowned Dragging Canoe, who was her cousin. She fought side by side with Kingfisher, chewing his bullets to soften them. During the battle, he was felled by a Creek warrior. After his death, a retreat was called. However, in her anger, she took Kingfisher's rifle, which we call Muscawana, and screamed a war cry. The first person she killed was the warrior who killed her beloved husband. Hearing and seeing Nanyahi, the other Cherokee warriors abandoned their retreat and followed her back to the battle. That was a red path to war that taught Nanyahi many things. The most important lesson she learned was that peace comes with a high price, but war has a much higher price to pay. After this war, she was elevated to Gageyu. Gageyu means beloved woman. My grandmother was approximately three months pregnant when she led this battle with her son, Little Fellow, who grew to become another renowned warrior called Five Killer. Being a born leader, she had many heavy decisions she would have to make over her lifetime. She knew and worked with many great American heroes and legends. According to my family stories that have been passed down for many hundreds of years through the oral tradition, some of those renowned people were Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, General Severe, and my personal favorite, Daniel Boone. At one time in history, there was a letter written from General Severe to the current president, Thomas Jefferson. In this letter, General Severe wanted to know what he should do with his captive, Nancy Ward. Upon receipt of this letter, Thomas Jefferson immediately wrote back and told General Severe to ask Nancy Ward what should be done with her and to follow her directions. So see, sometimes a prisoner isn't always the best thing to have. And in that case, Nancy won over and was allowed to leave. And that's when she returned to her new home in Benton, Tennessee, at the Woman Killer Ford, which was an inn that she ran on the Okohe River. It was also a mill. Her family included the peace chief, Atakula Kula, who was a very renowned negotiator of his day. The war chief, Okanastoa, was also her uncle. 
and of course, Chickamauga Cherokee Warrior Chief Dragging Canoe that ran a lot of the Overhill Country villages. She negotiated Kentucky for sale with the infamous Daniel Boone, who she loved, adored, and respected highly. She lived in the village of Chota along the Little Tennessee River. There, all were safe in Chota, which was a city of refuge. She lived there for many decades, running that village. All who entered there were safe from harm. This was the village that she ran. Inside the border, many people of all races lived free. All had tasks that held importance from the youngest to the oldest, performing tasks that benefited the village and all the people who lived there. We had a sophisticated trade route that traversed the entire Americas. These traders brought herbs and different stones and tradable goods. The traders had a language that they used. It was called the trader language, which they used to communicate with each other. We spoke in high, low, and ancient tongues of the Cherokee language. We lived in cabins in the winter that were dug out into the ground for warmth. In the summers, we lived in open-sided huts. Nancy Ward fought for peace most of her lifetime. The settlers called her Nancy Ward, princess, prophetess of the Cherokee Nation. And there were some that called her a traitor to her people. As her family included at least two war chiefs, I beg to differ she was a traitor. She worked tirelessly to retain our lands in Tennessee and Georgia. Her cry was peace for all men's sons, as to live together in peace was the only way forward. This was not to be, no matter how hard the Native American Indians tried to assimilate to the ways of the white people. None, he was a prophetess. And she foretold the trail of tears. She said, I see my people walking in a line with tears streaming down their face. My family is one of the largest of the Cherokee families surviving because of her prophecy. Many of the family left voluntarily and removed ourselves to the Western territories, Indian territories. I would ask you to please read the novel, Woman of Many Names to learn more about my courageous grandmother. Some of her descendants are Becky Hobbs, famous country western singer of the 70s and 80s, as well as the author of a play, Nanyi, which is about our grandmother, R.A. Tittle, who was a famous, not sure if he was a linebacker or quarterback that played football. Will Rogers, the famous Iris, and also his son, Will Rogers Jr. Audie Murphy, well-known actor as well. Cherokee Chief Bill Don Baker, my brother Brent Yates, New York Times best-selling e-book author of The Gravity of Up, and me, Deborah Sue Yates. I would like to read to you the preface for my book, Woman of Many Names. At the age of 12, I discovered my ancestry. I praised the creator for showing me the beautiful story of my great-grandparents. Their story has scarcely been addressed in our North American history, 
Yet I have such immense pride in my Cherokee ancestry that it must be told. Their story has been scarcely addressed in American history. As a curious child, I began to question my grandfather, Buffington Tittle, of his life on what he called the reservation in Oklahoma when he was a child. Locking his story in my mind throughout the years, I had the pleasure of meeting several of my Oklahoma relatives who took such pleasure in recanting stories they had been told by their parents as young children. Little did I know that one day I would be the one to retell their stories that had been shared within my family for many generations. I began to write my seventh great grandmother Nancy Ward's story to further explain her part in American history. She helped to sculpt this country I loved. It is a story of tremendous courage and love. It is also a saga of a destiny foretold and fulfilled by a woman of the greatest honor amongst her people, the Cherokee. This is the legend of a woman who wanted to keep her people and children safe in a war that was changing with a speed that could not be controlled. Undeniable forces came together through this era of history. North America was being invaded by countries from all over the world. Monarchies and dioceses thirsty to seek possessions and treasures of a new fertile land. With these forces come the demise and destruction of many indigenous people of America. Great women of American history walked the lands during Nanyahi's lifetime, many of whom she encountered personally and others she knew through the power of negotiation. She knew of infamous men we could only know from history, lessons like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Daniel Boone. Nancy Ward sat on numerous influential treaty councils and led many land transfers. She worked tirelessly to ensure that her children, grandchildren, and those who followed this ancestry would have a place to call home in today's society. As I tell the story of a girl born as Wild Rose, the woman who was declared by the U.S. government as the last princess and prophetess of the Cherokee Nation, my hope is that more people to understand and appreciate this marvelous woman's place in history. Though she was a great warrior and led her people to great victories over those who would destroy her and her children, my seventh great-grandmother is remembered as a great peacemaker in her culture. She was a woman who risked the wrath of her own people to protect them from invaders and each other. Nanyi had the ability as a medicine woman to heal, to glimpse into the future and make decisions that would affect her as well as the invaders of her land. Many generations of settlers of this wild and dangerous country owe their very lives to this miraculous woman. Those are the words of my seventh great grandmother. Her words rang with simple yet all-encompassing truth that still ring true today. I have written this book that none of us forget where we came from and that we owe this land, the land that holds the blood of our ancestors. I hope you'll read my book and know that it came from the heart and I wrote it as correctly as I possibly could. I actually wrote this novel, not to be a novel, but just to be a history lesson for my nieces and nephews and all my little nieces and nephews that would come to be in this world. Upon doing that, I sent it to my girlfriend and asked her would she transpose my writings onto a computer disk for me because I'm not that well versed in the computer. So after she was done writing all these words down that came to me from I don't know where, I'm not a writer, I just 
was writing down my family stories and it just kind of took over a place in my heart that I've come to appreciate so highly. It's brought me so many friendships and recognition for Nancy Ward is really all I'm after, not necessarily for myself, but for her. She was a great woman and that's how it all started. I'm an accidental author. So, Sanator Gohani Wado, which means Till we meet again, goodbye. Nancy had ties to Danielle Boone and George Washington. She even saved Washington's life, and there are letters from her to him found in Thomas Jefferson's belongings. And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatable-media.com. Thank you for listening. And whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story.